Do you ever get tired of the same old, same old? I think everyone has experienced that. When responding to this, some people try to resolve that sense of same old, same old by taking a vacation or getting some new clothes or a new car, getting a new job or moving to a new location. And I'm sure, uh, if you're a believer, there are times that you get sick of your own tendencies, your own way of thinking and the way that you react to certain circumstances. I, I know that all of us have a tendency to be frustrated with our own weakness and sinfulness. Well, if we respond to our lack of contentment with circumstances by changing our clothes or our car or going on vacation or moving away, we can guarantee this. Those clothes will get old. The car will get scratched. You have to come back from vacation the new house will get dirty and eventually you'll be still stuck with you. So changing your circumstances, changing your environment, changing your clothing does not provide what's needed. The newness of life that God grants to us as His children never gets old. The newness of life that God grants brings glory to Him. It brings refreshing to our souls. And it brings benefit to those who are around us. I want for us to read our passage. This we've read a number of times now. I want for these words to sink down deep into our souls. We're going to read Romans 6, 1-14 through in their entirety. Then we're going to go back through the, the bullet points that we're trying to understand so that they will um, reside within us. We need these truths. This is a vital Christian doctrine for us. This is, this is the new life doctrine that God, through the Apostle Paul, provides for us in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him." We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. 
so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not, therefore, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So here are the bullet points, these that we want to continue to meditate on. I've tried to refine them down a little bit, so they might be worded a little bit differently this week than last. Believers should not and cannot live in sin. Should not and cannot. Secondly, believers have been eternally united with Jesus Christ. Third, believers have been given new life. Fourth, believers are no longer in bondage to sinful passions. Number five, believers are guaranteed eternal life. Number six, believers have been freed from sin's tyranny by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Seven, believers are enabled to live for the glory of God. Number eight, and this is emphasized because here's where the, the commands of the text begin. Believers must understand, and I wrote the, and I meant to write this. Believers must understand this divine accomplishment. Believers must understand this divine accomplishment. It was accomplished by God. But it's our job to understand it. It's our job to understand it. To reckon it. To, to realize what God has done. Number nine, believers must apply God's work in this present age. Believers must apply God's work in this present age. Number ten, believers must place themselves under the authority of God. We're going to pause here for just a moment and look at verse 13. Believers must place themselves under the authority of God. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul uses the Greek term paristemi. And he uses that term, or that term is used 42 times in the New Testament. Eight times it's used in the book of Romans. That's a high percentage. And there's a, a major usage in Romans chapter 6. He uses it again in Romans chapter 12. And he uses it again in Romans chapter 16. And when he uses it in Romans chapter 16, it gives us just a touch more of the sense of how to apply it in chapter 6 and chapter 12. The word istemi or paristemi means to place at the disposal of or to present oneself as a vessel for use. And what he says in Romans chapter 16, he's talking about a woman named Phoebe. She's a deaconess of the church. She's a servant of the church. 
And he says in verse 2, help her. Help her. And he uses the same term, paristemi. In other words, what he's saying is, church, when Phoebe is around trying to serve God, make sure you present yourself as a vessel ready to help, ready to assist, ready to get the job done. Come and bring something to the table so that that mission that she is on from me, from the Lord, is able to be accomplished. Assist her in this. And this concept, um, if you inject that thought back into Romans chapter 6 and 12, and it tells us to present our members, present our vessels as an instrument for God. We're placing ourselves at God's disposal that we would be vessels fit for His use. In Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Present everything you are to God. Why? So that you can accomplish His perfect and good will. That's what we're here for. And in Romans chapter 6, he's telling us the way that we flesh out, flesh out what God has worked in is to say, God, I'm a vessel of yours. Present yourself as a, as a vessel ready to be used by God rather than a vessel ready to be used by you and your resources. Your old way. He's talking about the new way. So we're talking about placing ourselves under the authority of God. Number 11 in this text. Believers have new power. Believers have new power. Look what verse 14 says. For sin will not, not not don't let sin, it says, for sin will not have dominion over you. Why is this true? Since you are not under law, but under grace. Well, why is he using the law as a means to talk about sin not dominating me? Well, it says where the law came in chapter 5 and verse 20, where the law came, sin increased. And where sin increased, grace abounded. This is good. So I have forgiveness abounding, but not just forgiveness. Where the law calls and and tries to place me under, the grace of God sets me free and enables. And the way that we'll see this is this. We are not under the pressing demands of the law, but under the enabling power of God. We are not under the pressing demands of the law, but we are under the enabling power of God. And this is succinctly demonstrated in an old poetic expression expression written by some guy named John. Now often it is attributed to John Bunyan, but I don't actually think if you do the historical research that John Bunyan is the origin of this statement. Nonetheless, some guy named John wrote this statement and it's a glorious statement. It says this, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the Gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The difference is one is demanding something that it cannot provide for you. The other, the Gospel says, here, I don't want you to run. I want you to fly. But in my calling you to fly, I'm going to give you what you need so you can The the law doesn't give us the ability to run like it's calling us to run. But the Gospel not only calls us to a higher standard than the law, it gives us the power that comes that's necessary so that we can meet that demand of greater things. 
So this morning, we are going to be looking at the practical outworking of the new spiritual life that's been granted to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we do, we must understand that the application of biblical truth must be accompanied by the power of God. The application of biblical truth must be accompanied by the power of God. This power of God we call God's grace. But I want to help to make sure that we're aware that God's grace is not just power. God's grace comes in a person. The person associated with the grace of God that enables you and enables me not only to run, but to fly. Not to come to a better standard than I used to. Not to come to a better standard than my neighbor. But to come to the standard of God. That which allows us to fly is God's grace in the person of the Holy Spirit. God has given us His Spirit. He dwells within us and enables us to do the glorious things that God's Word calls for in the Christian life. So while this morning we want to talk about the application of biblical truth and seeing it fleshed out in our lives and what that new life looks like, we're not saying, hey, figure out how to do this of your own marred resources. Because your marred resources and my marred resources will not get done what is necessary to live in newness of life. Only what we're trying to do is allow what God has already granted to come out in life. God's already done this. Now we're just putting on the new man. Head over please with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We began this process last week. We're discussing and considering... Worshiping God in seeing how the new life is put on display. And last week we saw two ways that the new life was put on display. The first of which is we display the new life by truth-telling rather than falsehood. Truth-telling rather than falsehood. Secondly, by respect rather than anger. These both come from Ephesians 4. Now we want to press forward to another area that newness of life must be displayed in our lives. As a believer, this is not optional. What we're looking we're not trying to be the A+ student. We're not the nerd of the class. We're not looking for accolades. This is the bare minimum of the Christian life. When God tells us to put on the new man, that is the expected norm for a Christian. And the way that that fleshes out is these principles. This is not like the superstar Christian. This is a Christian. And when the Spirit of God is controlling the child of God, this does come out. And it comes out just as it is described here. If we come shy of what is described then we're not operating in the realm of the Spirit. We're operating in the realm of the flesh. And we cannot accept the flesh. The flesh is not the norm for the Christian life. The Spirit is the norm for the Christian life. And so we cannot accept 
anything less than the flying that the Gospel enables by the Spirit. So we're in chapter 4 of Ephesians and we want to look at verse 28. Ready? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. So rather than taking, he's working. And he's doing honest work with his own hands rather than taking the honest work of someone else. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so how we'll characterize this in the newness of life on display is sharing rather than stealing. Our new life demonstrates itself in a completely new way. Where we once would have sought to accumulate for ourselves as much as possible, we now, as God's children, have a charitable spirit. Instead of accumulation, a desire to distribute. So last week, I saw this sign in Hobby Lobby. I was duped into going to Hobby Lobby under the guise of going to BJ's to buy a ginormous pork shoulder. Oh, while we're here, it's right there. So Hobby Lobby it was. Men, learn this. This is a great expression. Are you ready? Are you ready? Yes, dear. Have you learned? Good. All right. So, but now, on to the seriousness. This sign that I saw and took a picture of is, is beautiful. It says, when you have more than you need, build a longer table, not a higher fence. It's not Scripture. I don't usually like quaint sayings. But this one, this one stuck. Instead of holding, holding, saving, hoarding, keeping, I'll keep them out. They weren't going to come and take what's mine. When you have more than enough, invite people to the table to share it with you. And I think it captures, brothers and sisters, the idea of Ephesians 4.28. Rather than continuing on as thieves taking what others have earned, we are to work hard, laboring with our own hands, working hard, not so that we can hoard up treasure for ourselves, but so we can share what God has graciously given us with others. To have something to give to those who have need. I think this is part of the new affections that God gives us when we're walking with Him. A desire to share. To see someone else blessed by the blessings that God has given to you and He's given to me. When we're blessed in some way, it is our delight to try to share that blessing with someone else. And you know, your level of finance may be much less than someone else's level of finance. That, that doesn't preclude this concept. You don't have to give a great amount for someone else to be blessed by the blessing God's given you. It's sharing what you have. Sharing what you have. Sharing your time. Sharing your resources. Sharing your skills. Sharing your wisdom. And so many in this body I have been blessed by and tried to be a blessing to 
by sharing with one another the life that God has given to us. And, and, and when we do this, there's a special way that we've experienced God's grace. It's God's grace, His power, which comes from His Spirit, working in His children and coming out. There's something special about God using us to be a channel of His grace. One of the concerns that the apostles had in giving Paul the right hand of fellowship that he was to share the Gospel with the Gentiles, you'll remember, they said this, we only ask that you remember the poor. And Paul says, it was the very thing I was eager to do. James uses this concept as a testing ground for a living, active faith. Take a look with me at James chapter 2. James chapter 2. He tests whether someone has a living, active faith. A faith that bears fruit. You'll remember the words of Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon. It is faith alone that saves. But the faith that saves is not alone. When God works His work of salvation in us, He brings with it the demonstration of that faith in life. We can't be comfortable, ladies and gentlemen, of hoarding God's blessings. That is indicative of the old way, not the new way. And here's what James has to say. Of course, it's really God saying it through James. We know it all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Verse 14 of James chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, a profession of faith alone, can that faith save him? And the answer to that is no. A profession of faith does not save possession of faith. True, saving faith saves. And the saving faith comes with God's work. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Well, that's kind of unfair. How can you show faith if it doesn't have any evidence? It's kind of unfair. That's the point. Show me. How is it that you know you have faith? Well, I'm going to show you just with my faith. I believe. That's a speaking of faith. And he said in verse 14 that that faith doesn't save. Now you don't see this in your English translation, but the way that he worded it in the Greek, the expectation to that answer at the end of verse 14 is a negative. Instead of using the the term ou or ouk, he used the term may. May means the expectation of the question that that has may as the the negative in it. The expectation is is a no. So he says, does that kind of faith save? The answer is no. A profession of faith does not save. And then later on he says, so now I want you to show me your faith without your works. So all you've got is your mouth. But I'm going to show you my faith by my works. 
Now you have something to hang your hat on. Now, he's not saying we earn our salvation. He's not saying that this work now authenticates me as a Christian. He's just saying that now people can see the evidence, the handiwork of God having grafted faith into your life. And this is really what we see back in in, uh, Ephesians 4. Instead of being a thief and remaining a thief, he says, work with your hands. Why? So you can have a treasure trove? No. So you can have something to give to those that have a need. John the Apostle says the very same thing in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. By this we know love that he laid down his life. Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brother for the brothers. Oh, yeah, I'd lay down my life for you. I just wouldn't give you a hamburger if you're hungry. I'd lay down my life for you, but if you don't have a shirt to put on, I'm not going to give you a shirt. Oh, I'd lay down my life for you, but your car's broken? Well, good luck. Tough. Hope that works out for you. Be warmed and filled. Listen to what he says. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, so he's not talking about someone that doesn't have goods. He's not saying someone that's broke can't, can't provide a shirt, can't provide a burger, can't help someone fix their car. He's talking about someone that has this world's goods and closes his heart against him. Here's the good question. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Well, if James isn't enough, and John's not enough, and of course the start of our conversation was Paul, if Paul's not enough, the red letters, of course, will get it done. Of course, I don't, I don't believe that. If you don't believe James, you don't believe Paul, you don't believe John, you're not going to believe the words of Jesus either. But... There's a great illustration that Jesus gives to us in this regard when He tested the rich young ruler regarding His possessions. Listen to what the Bible says in Mark chapter 10, verses 20 and 20, 20 through 22. It says, And He said to them, Teacher, all these I have kept from My youth. I've kept all those commandments. Jesus, looking at Him, loved Him and said to Him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow Me. Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for He had great possessions. He had it. He had what was needed. But it wasn't worth giving those things up to follow Jesus. You can't take your treasure trove and follow Jesus. Jesus had nowhere to lay His head. You can't take a big mule with a, you know, Eeyore with all the stuff strapped on His back. Not happening. Not happening. Lay it down. Jesus, your life for mine. Which one do you want? You want yours? If you want yours, enjoy it. Enjoy it well. It only lasts just so long. If you want mine, mine lasts forever. I'll take your shabby short-term life. You take my eternal life. That's the choice. What do you want? Want the one that doesn't last or the one that lasts? Jesus challenged him, and it had everything to do with his treasures. The new way is so different. But you know, God's been talking about this very thing to his people from the beginning. Take a look at Deuteronomy 15 just for a moment. Deuteronomy 15. We're going to go back to Ephesians in a moment. But Deuteronomy 15, we're talking about sharing rather than stealing. Or you could say sharing rather than hoarding. 
or sharing rather than squandering. In Deuteronomy 15, God spoke to His people about caring for their neighbors. Beginning in verse 7 of Deuteronomy 15, this is what the Bible says, "...if anyone among you, one of your brothers, should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand." Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? The way he uses this expression. He's giving us a picture. Harden your heart. Oh, don't, don't you care? Don't you care that he doesn't have enough? Don't you care that he can't keep his family housed? Don't you care that he can't keep his kids warm? Don't you care that he can't feed his kids? Does it bother you? Shut up your heart. And then he says, close your hand. It's mine. 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 Not yours. I worked hard. That's why I have it. You didn't. That's why you don't. Be careful, brothers. Be careful, sisters. That, that's not the mindset we have. That doesn't preclude other texts of Scripture that say if anyone will not work, you will not eat. That's a different story. That's, a diff- that's, that's filling out the picture. Here we're talking about someone in genuine need. And this is from the Lord. Right? Verse 8, But you shall open your hand to Him and lend Him sufficient for His need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, oh, the 70th year. The year of release is near. Oh no! I'm going to lend it out. And it's going to be a forgiven debt. And then I'll be out all this money. Be careful. Pause. Adding some other Scripture in. Where'd you get the money in the first place? Is it because of your wisdom and strength and intellect? Or did God entrust to you that wisdom and strength and intellect and the ability to make money? It all comes from Him. It all needs to go back to Him. Going on a little further. It's the 70th year. The year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of... Uh Uh-oh. What is it? Sin. Oh, well, that's the Old Testament. (laughs) Is that that what you do? You read something you don't like, oh, that's the Old Testament. I've heard people say stuff like that. I don't think that's wise. Because where God is talking about the law, while there may be some laws like you know what blend of clothing you wear or whether you should eat a lobster or not, those things that have passed away because they've been fulfilled in Christ, and you know you don't bring a lamb to church. Yeah, I, I understand th- those. That's not for us because it's been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled. Those were a shadow, and the substance has come. Yes, those things have been fulfilled. But it, when, when God's talking about the poor of the land, is it not showing you something of His concern for people? That doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're talking about the new life. We're talking about the new life. The life that comes to us. It's been granted to us. It's been gifted to us. Not because I'm so special and earned it somehow. I climbed up this this ladder and God said, oh, you've done a good job now, Bobby. It's yours. Here, have it. None of this. 
None of this. It's a free gift of God. God has taken the old and He's given me the new. And it fleshes out by caring. It fleshes out by not hoarding. It fleshes out by not squandering. It fleshes out by not stealing. It fleshes out instead by saying, I see a need. How can I meet that need? Lord, do I have enough? Can I, can I, can I take some of this money that's yours? That's yours? That you've provided for me to give to you? Have you, have you provided it for me, for my family? Should I take some of this and help so-and-so? They have a need. I see the need. Somehow that need came across. Maybe they were underhanded in the way they came across letting me know. Maybe they were very manipulative in the way they presented their case. But you see the need. You shut up your heart? You close your hand? No. No, this is not the new way. That's the old way. God's given us new life. And one day, my brother, one day, my sister... All this is going to be over. All this is going to be over. All your time that you've been entrusted on this earth will come to an end. All your resources will go somewhere else. All the things you've accumulated, done. And it's you before the Lord. Will it have been worth squandering, hoarding, stealing? No. No. There's a better way. It's the new way. It's the spirit way. So we talk to the Lord about these things. Lord, I see what you've given to me. I see my life. And I see people around me. Lord, how, how should I spend your money? How should I use your money? How should I save your money? How should I share your money? All right, enough. enough. Head back to Ephesians chapter 4. One of the most valuable resources that you and I have is our time. And we need to invest our time in others. You may not have as much money as someone else, but we're all entrusted the same number of hours in a day. And we should share those hours with one another for God's glory. There's another demonstration of the new life that we have back in Ephesians chapter 4. It's the new life that we've received in Christ and it's how we speak to one another. Now we used, talked a little bit about the speech last week when we talked about truth-telling as opposed to falsehood. Now he goes a little further in this application of the new life and our tongue. And so we'll characterize it this way from verse 29 of Ephesians 4. Building up rather than tearing down. Building up rather than tearing down. Verse 29. Let no corrupt talking come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Or that you, through your speech, may give grace to those who hear. This is a very unique passage. It's very uncommon for God to indicate that I can give grace. It's really, I think, the way they understand it when you read all of Scripture and understand grace, it's really, am I a channel of that grace of God? 
Have I surrendered my will to the Spirit in the power of God through the Spirit of God in the child of God is then dispensing God's grace. If I'm dispensing my grace, well, that's nice, but it's not life-giving and it's not life-changing and it's not really building up. It's just kind of nice. When I'm a dispenser, a channel of God's grace, that's when real life transformation happens and he's now talking about how we speak not about true and false but about the kinds of words that we speak listen to these verses of scripture they're proverbs and helpful proverbs 25 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver so you just say just the right thing and it's like yes that was that was ornate that was that was worthy of framing Verse uh, Proverbs 15.23 To make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season. How good is it? Have you, have you had that opportunity where you were surrendered to the Lord and you were talking to someone and you, you know because of how God worked in their life that God worked through you. It was the right word at the right time, and it was good. Have you, you experienced that? It's really a joyful thing when you know the Lord has used you as an instrument for Him. Proverbs 16.24 Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. So in, in Ephesians 4, he, he's con- comparing and contrasting that which is corrupting, rotten and putrefying with that which is good and dispensing of grace. What are some types of corrupt communication? Now we're just going to list these. We don't have time to, to look all these Scripture passages up. Just, just think about it. They're pretty self-evident. Corrupting speech. Swearing. Gossip. Complaining. Criticizing, vulgar speech, sacrilegious speech, and there's using taking God's name in vain. Just talking like God about God like, like you don't really know who he is. So what happens when someone says, Oh my, and finish it off with the name God? Oh my. So, really? Wait a second. I think you're talking about God and using it as an expression that's like you're shocked. That doesn't seem to go together unless you're saying, oh my God, I cry out to you in my need. That, that's not sacrilegious. Or using Jesus' name like it's an insult or a, or a, a swear or a, a, a damning. You've heard that. It's not, not, coming out of, not coming out of your mouth. Not coming out of my mouth. Corrupting communication. But instead of corrupting, putrefying, um, eroding conversation, we're talking about good conversation that instead of deteriorating, builds up. Good and gives grace. Good and dispenses God's goodness. There are three qualities, at least, and probably a hundred, but three qualities that we'll mention briefly of redeemed speech. It builds up, it meets a need, and it provides grace. When someone is finished with a conversation with you, do they need to decompress? Do you know what I mean? I've had way too many conversations with people where I was like, all right, that's it for the day. I'm putting 
putting the do not disturb on the door. I've turned all my phones off. I gotta go home and sit in a, in a dark room. You know what a dark room is? When they get a concussion, you go in the dark room. Don't look at any screens, no noises, no nothing. You need a dark room after talking with you. Decompressing. Is that how, what people feel like when they're done with you? That's corrupting communication. You have not communicated in a way that built them up. In fact, you've, you've sapped them of their life. Do they need to recalibrate their thinking when they're done with you? Man, that person was all over the place. I don't know what's happening right now. I gotta, man, I've got to refocus. Lord, help me to think about something true now after all that stuff I just heard. Recalibrating. Or, are they encouraged? Why would they be encouraged? Because they're, they're talking about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They're talking about the redemption that they've received. They're rejoicing in the Lord. Or they might be helping you to, to get your mind recalibrated. Hey, look, at, I, I know you're going through these problems, and I'm not trying to belittle your problems. I'm not trying to, to say that they're not important. But, but look this way. Look this way. God has a purpose in this, and He's going to help you. He, he, he's going to give you what you need. Seek Him. Seek Him. They've encouraged your heart because they used their mouths to point you in the right direction. So they've recalibrated you. You've been encouraged. Are you, when you're done, or when you're done with, is, is someone praising God? Yes, God, you are so good. You are so kind. I know they're going through X, Y, and Z, and yet they're still praising you. See, we're not putting this stuff on. This is the new life. The new life. This is the life that comes to us when we're surrendered to the Spirit. He gives us joyful, thankful, wise, directed words. Words that reflect Him. Alright, lastly, in Ephesians 4. Kindness and love rather than bitterness and hate. Look at these verses. Verses 30-32. through 32. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Just, just look at this. He's talking about what's old in verse 31. Bitterness. Wrath. Anger, clamor, slander. Put it away with malice. Instead, the new life is characterized by something altogether different. The new life is characterized by kindness, tender-hearted living, and forgiveness. What a world of difference from verse 31 to verse 32. It's night and day. Stark contrast in attitudes. The new life, empowered by the Spirit, seeks peace and communion. The old way, empowered by the flesh, is quite satisfied with division, comparison, contrast, and keeping a record of wrongs. In the middle of verse 32, it says, forgiving one another. And the Greek term is karizomai. Karizomai. Can you hear karis? Karis in there? Do you know what karis means? Grace. 
So the way you could read it is, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, gracing one another as God in Christ has graced you. Grace. Listen to the comments of Harold Horner on this. I think you'll be encouraged. You'll be on the screen to my left and right. To be gracious is not only the normal meaning of the word, but it is the most suited to the context. Graciousness is the antithesis of bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and abusive speech. In other words, bitterness is counteracted by a gracious attitude. Anger and wrath are counteracted by a gracious disposition. And the shouting and abusive speech are counteracted by gracious speaking. These concepts are very easy to understand. But in life, they can be much more difficult to put into practice. When someone says something unflattering about you behind your back, and you find out about it, it can be hard to carry on with the same type of loving spirit. But always remember this. The spiritual work that God calls us to must always be accomplished by the Spirit. By the Spirit. So it's not about whether you can, you're capable. I'm so capable. Uh, because I've come so far in my life, I find it very easy to forgive. That, well, good luck. If, if it's about you, you might think you're forgiving, but it's not real. What's real is when the Spirit graciously works in you. Forgiveness and grace. When you struggle to move on from someone else's unkindness, you need to bring it to the Lord. I need to bring it to the Lord. And He's the one that can take that sting away. As a means of trying to process through letting go of resentment or bitterness or anger and the associated responses, we should remember the infinite measure of sin that God has forgiven on our behalf. God has forgiven all of our sin. We should remember the extent of that forgiveness and ask God to help us to grant that type of forgiveness. Do you have new life? Is it same old, same old, got to change my shirt. Same old, same old, need another car. I'm a Clark, I need another car. Haven't changed one for a while. It's been since November. It's time for another one. Is that, is that going to get the job done? Is that how you're going to feel? A little kick again? No. New life. The new life in Christ never gets old. It never runs dry. It's real and it's satisfying. How is it fleshing out in our lives? We have a new ruler. But do my thoughts seem different? Do my intentions seem different? Are my words different? Do other people want to be around me? Or would they rather run? When people are around us, they should have experienced some form of gain having been around us because we have pointed them to the refreshing that is found in Christ through our words and our deeds. This will happen. This will happen when we are submitting our members as instruments of righteousness to God. 
Of course, we're going to continue these discussions next week. We're going to look at uh, the husband and wife relationship as well as the parent-child relationship and the child-parent relationship and see how the new life is reflected even in those home circumstances. We want this newness of life to mark us and be obvious. Let's pray together. Father, you know what's needed in each one's life. I don't. Your word is truth and your spirit is capable. And so we commit ourselves and each other to you. In Jesus' name, amen.